I hope you're ready. We dig into the Word tonight. Turn your attention to Romans chapter 2. We'll pick up in verse 17. We get to finish uh, chapter 2 tonight in a message I've entitled Wrong Security. As we turn our attention now, and I, I want to I bring this to life for us because people get to these passages of Scripture where we see a heavily Jewish influence and they often skip over them because immediately they go, well, I'm not Jewish, I'm not Hebrew heritage, you know, what does it really mean for me? In one sense, you could say, well, that could be true on one hand. And on the other hand, it's absolutely true. It's absolutely accurate because if there were ever a group of people about whom one could say, if they were eternally secure for any other reason other than God's amazing grace, it would be the Jewish people. The Jewish people are privileged to have a relationship that no one else on the face of the earth actually has. The covenant relationships that were given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through them, the entire world, through Abraham's seed, would be blessed. And of course, we know that blessing. His name is Jesus. But through the Jewish people, we get a very clear picture of the wrong kind of security. God wants you to be secure in your faith, and God wants you to understand how much he loves you. That is without question the message of the entire Bible, but very specifically the book of Romans. But people can get security in all kinds of other things that on the outside look like they might get you close to the Lord without grace. And if ever there were a group, it would be the Jewish people. And so tonight, what are you trusting in for your security? Don't make it the wrong one. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the amazing truth that's found within these words, Lord, that you authored by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. And God, as we now study them, would we be strengthened and built up? Lord, would we never place our faith, our hope, our trust for our eternal destiny, our security in anything except the precious Savior, our Lord Jesus? We bless you. We praise you. Speak to us, we pray, through your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 17, as we continue on here in our study in Romans 2, for indeed, now remember he's speaking back, for indeed, you are called a Jew. He's already kind of spoken to this issue uh, of, of circumcision. He's talked about, you know, how they heard the law. And notice what he says, and I want you to start looking at all of these things that are actions, and, and we'll highlight them as we go through this fairly long passage of Scripture. For indeed you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve of the things that are excellence, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, and a light to those who are in darkness. Are you seeing how stacked up all these things are? 
he begins by saying, you indeed are called a Jew. And now he's going to lay out all this stuff. That couldn't we start trusting in these things tonight ourselves? Well, I know the word. I can teach it. Check it out. Instructor of the foolish. You're a great biblical counselor. A teacher of babies. You've been in Sunday school ministry for 27 years. Having a form of knowledge and truth in the law. You not only know what it says, you can actually apply it. You therefore who teach another. Here comes the, here comes the hammer. You ready? Ready to get whacked? I'm not trying to whack you. Remember, Scripture says what it says, means what it says. We just try and teach what it says. Amen? And therefore, you who teach another, do you teach yourself? Are you a hearer and not a doer? Are you one who knows it but fails to apply it to your own life? You who preach that man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through the breaking of the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Ouch. The very ones who were privileged to be the first of the monotheistic religions. In other words, mono meaning singular, theism meaning the study of God. There are only three of them to this day. Judaism, biblical Christianity, and Islam. Preceding all of them is Judaism. By more than 1,500 years. And it was to the Jewish people that God first met with their representative Moses. And they received the law. A direct revelation from the one true and living God to a single people group, the Jews. And yet he says in all these things... In all that doing, in all that knowing, in all that understanding, in all that applicational ability, in all of that personal attention, God gave this small people group personalized attention to them. Look, you dishonor God through the breaking of the law for the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. You've had all the rights and all the privileges, but you've done nothing with it. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And so he turns his attention to the one thing that was unique amongst the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, and that was the rite of circumcision. On the eighth day, every male child had that flesh cut away. And it was assigned to the rest of the world 
as weird as it may seem to us in our day and time, they were identified physically with the cutting away of the flesh so that anyone who met a true Jewish man who was the head of his home and thereby the priest of his home, that that man would be represented in the fact that he could say, I'm a Jew. Circumcised on the eighth day. Very unique people group. Very privileged people group. And therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Ah, can you imagine a Jewish person hearing that? That's an are-you-kidding-me moment. That's the very same thing that happened when the Pharisees were talked to by Jesus, and he, he calls them blasphemers. They're like, are you out of your gourd? Have you lost your mind? Paul, you're a Jew. You were circumcised on the eight. You know we're different. You know what they actually believed? We're special. We're better. We're holy because we've been circumcised. We're Jewish. And Paul says, if someone who's uncircumcised keeps the requirements of the law, which the law and the prophets is fulfilled in love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Amen? That's the way it is now. But then, if there was an uncircumcised heathen who kept the law, the Apostle Paul saying, he's in good stead with the Lord. They're like, no! Can't be. And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge, check this out. You thought it was bad before. Will not the uncircumcised Gentile, the physically uncircumcised, the one who can't identify with the Jewish people because nobody else did it, if he fulfills the law, judge you who are even with your written code and circumcision a transgressor of the law. Do you realize what he's saying? He's saying the uncircumcised heathen who keeps the requirements of the law because he's right with the Lord is going to judge the chosen people of God. Be careful in what? You place your security. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but God. Powerful, powerful passage of Scripture because it cuts right through all of our stuff. And I'm going to break this down as we look at this. You see, there's a natural impulse that we have 
as human beings to want security in virtually anything and everything. How we moved into our house in Lomita, I think we got seven and a half million little cards on our door for security systems. It's like we got 16,000 of them a day. You know, I couldn't even get in the house. And it was like, you know, if you have our security system, it can go to your smartphone and it goes to a satellite and it's connected to your cell and it can't be cut. And there's all this stuff. I mean, I'm sitting there listening to it. It's just like, man, we must really be in trouble living here because they're trying to sell us security. And people freak out. It's like, I want security so bad. If I have a security system, we want economic security. And by the way, we have two very large dogs. They are not a security system. They will tell you where our money is. <laughs> okay, it's over here. Don't run right to the jewelry box. Grab it and bring it to you. How about economic security? Is that not one of the main things that people are concerned about right now in our presidential election cycle? What am I going to do? How am I going to earn a living? What's going to happen to my family? These things are right. They're actually the way we should think, by the way. God made us this way. We are supposed to concern ourselves with our security. It's in us to do so. You ever get in a life or death situation, you have fright, you have flight. Those two impulses will come upon you. You will be so concerned for your own health and the health of those that are around you that you know and love that you will do most anything to save yourself. We are concerned with security. We're concerned about our economic security. I want to make sure I can put food on the table. We're so concerned about our national security that almost one-third of every single dollar that's spent in the United States of America is spent on military and intelligence. We're concerned about security. But history, personal experience, I can tell you from my own, and probably most of us in here could recount stories, There is no such thing as security in this world apart from Jesus Christ. There isn't any. Governments rise and fall. Monetary systems come and go. Labradors will always fail you when it comes to security. They eat a lot. They give you love, but keeping your house safe. The burglars just think something's going to happen because of their size. So what about your eternal security? What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in tonight? What are we trusting in? Can I tell you that we've already seen that in fact you're pre-programmed with the understanding that there's God. That's the story of chapter 1. It bleeds over into chapter 2. Nearly all of us believe to some degree that at some point in time, there's going to be a reckoning. Some people, even though they don't believe in heaven or hell, maybe they're Buddhist or perhaps they're Hindu. 
most people believe that your accounts at some point in time get settled. They believe in some form of karma. So much so that we now have credit karma. Now, what is that? It's like credit karma. Because most of us are not going to have good credit karma, okay? We think that if we do good things, we'll get good things. That's our basic mindset. If we live life correctly, that somehow it all works out in the end. And at the very worst, like a, a Buddhist would believe, if you just get recycled enough times, eventually your candle will snuff out and you become part of the cosmic oneness. You see some people go that way. But even that is a form of security. I, one day at least I'm not going to exist. All of us have that gnawing thing with inside of us that makes us want to be secure every day and surely try and at times convince ourselves that we're good enough for the great beyond. You know, somehow it'll just, you know, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. And in fact, many people go so far as to believe in some form of universalism which simply says that a good God would never condemn an even slightly good person. Now, you might have to go through a few hoops, but eventually God's just going to take care of it all. Your Bible doesn't say that. Your Bible, in fact, says very clearly, Jesus himself says very clearly that there is a real hell wherein there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And he would not have told us about it if it were not true and if it weren't possible to go there. So be careful about your security. You see, what happens is people believe the big lie. That could be, at its greatest extent, probably universalism. It's just, you know, God just being God eventually works it all out. I hate to tell you this. The wages of sin is death. It is the free gift of God that is life eternal in Christ Jesus as Lord. So you have a choice between what you can get of your own works, which is death, or eternal life, which is a free gift that comes to us by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ. So there's two roads. A universalist has a problem with their security. Because their security is in that either God's not looking or he doesn't care. That's not really good thinking. Still others insist that God is kind of like the God of Islam. The God of Islam basically has a set of scales. Your good deed goes on one side. They stack up. Your bad deeds go on the other, and hopefully you're going to come out with a little bit of balance on the good deed side. The weight of your good deeds would outweigh your bad deeds. Can I tell you, that's a vast majority of humankind believes that basic, internal, my security is, I've done good things. And I did three more of them than bad things. In my whole life. 
That's why you very often see people who think like that at the end of their life do things like give their cars away, their houses away. They all of a sudden are concerned about other people's well-being when for their whole life they were never concerned about anyone else's well-being. They try and balance the scales right at the end. Can I tell you that your Bible says that's not going to work either? You see, very often, when you look at the words of Jesus, you look at John the Baptist's words, you, you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you realize what they said about this particular subject. Jesus preached the same message John the Baptist preached, which was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Amen? If there's nothing to repent of, why would he tell us to repent? If God just works it all out at the end, why would we need to change at all? And so the natural question in the Jewish mind is, well, aren't we just already better than everybody else? Didn't we kind of start off in a superior position? We couldn't drop far enough to get down where the Gentiles are. That was the mindset. And they not only believed it, but they taught it. That was why it was taught by the rabbis that there was literally a, a rabbi that would sit often. It was Abraham that would sit at the gate of hell and prevent any circumcised Jewish person from ever going to hell. You can't, no, you can't go there. You're a Jew. You see, some Christians lived their lives exactly like the Jewish people. I grew up in a Christian home. I live in a Christian country. I've been teaching Sunday school. I have tithed for the last three weeks in a row. I even can say John 3.16. At least most of it. I own a King James Bible. Where are you placing your faith, your hope, and your trust? I go to Calvary Chapel, South Bay. They actually teach the Bible there. Praise the Lord, we get an opportunity to do that. But can I tell you something? You're not saved because you come to this church. You're not saved because you own a Bible. You're not actually saved because you know what your Bible says. You're not saved because your mom and dad are saved. You're not saved because we are a predominantly Christian nation. We are saved one at a time, person by person, by grace, and through faith, and nothing else. Amen? Amen? Family of God, this is going to be the battleground of this next millennium. Because people are returning to a universal view. They're returning to a works view. They're returning to a balanced view. They're returning to everything except for grace and faith. Now, 
Notice the three areas that the Apostle Paul picks on in this particular passage. He's going to explain the way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ shatters. It literally destroys the Jewish view that they were saved by their religious heritage, by their religious knowledge, and by their religious ceremonies and rites. They believed they were going to heaven because of heritage, knowledge, and ceremonies. That's what they believed. Paul shatters that. Notice what he says in verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew, the chosen people, our Savior, their Messiah, is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Jewish name, which is a shortened version of Hebrew, which was the language they spoke, the entire nation was boiled down to exactly one tribe, Judah. There were 12 tribes during the Assyrian invasion, which occurred between about 813 B.C. and ultimately would culminate with the children of Israel being wiped out in the north, taken into captivity, hauled off to Assyria, which would be followed by another invasion of Babylon in about 686. They go into captivity in Babylon. You you see, by the time Jesus comes, there's only one tribe that's actually known, and that's Judah. And all of Israel is called Judah. You see, they believed that their heritage was enough to make them right with God. That simply because they were Jews, they were okay with God. They had no desire to share the God-given truths that the Lord had given them with the rest of the world. And yet part of the Abrahamic covenant, the first covenant, was through you, Abraham, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. They said, well, we don't want to do that. Can I prove that to you? There's a book in your Bible that describes it. It's the book of Jonah. I ain't going to know Nineveh. Why did he say that? He tells us why. Because if I go there and preach to them, they'll get saved. And I'm not going to a bunch of heathens and giving them the truth so that they can get right with God. Let them fry in hell. Now I'm paraphrasing a bit. But that's pretty much the story, isn't it? He says, well, I'm not going there. So what does he do? Gets on a boat. He says, I'm going to Tarshish. Which, by the way, if you look at a map, Nineveh's over here. Tarshish is over there. It was opposite ends of the world at that time. He said, if they're over there, I'm going over there. God tells me to go there, I'm going to go there. That's called being disobedient. God says, go here, you go there. That's as far the wrong way as you can go. So there's a picture here for us. He believed, Jonah believed, the Jewish people believed that they were superior. And they had pride in that superiority. Micah the prophet actually declared to the corrupt, the Jews who said presumptuously, is not the Lord in our midst? He would said. Jerusalem is plowed and left as a heap of ruins as testimony to us. The Lord's supposed to be in our midst, but he's not in our midst. He is Ichabod. The glory's departed. 
And when you travel today to Israel, you're not going to find a temple on the Temple Mount. You're going to find not one, not two, but three mosques. There isn't even a temple for him to worship in. And yet, there's still an air of spiritual pride. Now again, do I love the Jewish people? Absolutely. Do I pray every single day for the peace of Jerusalem? Yes, I do. Do I believe that God has a plan, and we're going to see it when we get to chapter 11, for the Jewish people that all Israel would be saved? I absolutely believe that. But what they believe is they were already good enough. Because of their religious heritage. Being the chosen people. How does that apply to us? You see, we much like the ancient Hebrews can look at our lives and we look right past the hundred years that when these words were written, the Jewish people had been subjugated to Rome. And before that, the 300 years that the same Jewish people had been subjugated to Greece. And before that... You could go on and on and on and on, and you could put in the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians, and oh yeah, by the way, 400 years in Egypt. You see, they looked right past what God was telling them. They never saw the fact that they were not blessed like they thought they were. They were so busy looking at their heritage that they forgot their actual circumstances of their lives were a living hell on this earth. That they were making mud bricks without straw. That they had been completely taken as a people into captivity, not once, but twice. But they're so, we're blessed. There is a reason, family of God, that the Lord allows in our lives very difficult things. He is trying to get our attention. He's saying through your captivities. He's saying through your tribulations. He's saying through your trials. He's saying through my trials. Jeff, that's not the way you want to go. And this is not okay with me. You need to turn around and go the other way. Because it's not that you're a pastor that makes you right with me. It's that you do the will of the Father. That's the one about whom Jesus said is truly one of his kids. You are my disciples, Jesus said, indeed, if you keep my commandments. Not just because you go to church. And here's how that works. Because people automatically say, well, you're you're preaching works, man. No, I'm not. It's 100% grace. But if you're filled with 100% grace, then you're going to be 100% Jesus's. And Jesus-like things are going to come out of your life. Maybe not 100% of the time, but there's going to be a definite change as your mind is renewed and you are transformed day by day into the image of Jesus. It's inescapable as a child of God. Amen? 
So don't get all up in here. You know, well, I don't have to do anything. Because your Bible says differently. Jesus said differently. Jesus undermined that imagined security that they had in their racial standing and in their historical standing, that they were a race unto themselves. They're unique. Their DNA is so unique that one of the ways that you can tell whether somebody is a Hebrew is they have Hebrew DNA. That's why I can tell you that the Mormons are not Hebrews. They're not the lost tribe. They've got zero Hebrew DNA. None. There's no Hebrew DNA in the Mayans, the Incans, and the Aztecs, which is what the Book of Mormon claims. They thought they were okay because of their history, their religious heritage. A second thing. They had false security in their religious knowledge. Can you imagine? Think of this for a second. You're all smart. Think of this for a second. You're with a group of people. We'll call them the wandering knuckleheads. They're in this vast desert called the Sinai, one of the most inhospitable places on the planet Earth. Daytime temperatures exceeding on the ground 120 degrees. Nighttime temperatures below freezing. I don't know about you, that doesn't sound all that appealing to me. But the wandering knuckleheads who have been miraculously delivered from the most powerful army on the face of the planet, the Egyptians. So powerful was the Egyptian army that they were feared in the entire known world, by the way. So much so that everyone did business with the Egyptians to keep the Egyptians from coming after their stuff, including the Jewish people. But they're enslaved by them. They're not there for a week, a month, or a couple of years. They're enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. And not because during that 400 years, they have the Jewish intelligence agency all of a sudden starts up. And they secretly spy out what the Egyptians are doing, and they figure out a way to beat them militarily. They are such a mess that God has to step into time in the form of ten plagues, and the last one of which he kills off the firstborn of their enemy, the Egyptians. And he does that not because they're all out there with swords killing off their enemy, They're inside of their homes, protected by the innocent blood of a lamb spread on their doorposts and their lentils. And so after that happens, now Pharaoh's like, man, we got to get rid of these people. Okay, go ahead and go. He rethinks that. They go to the edge of the Red Sea, and they're looking at water. They're going... We've been here for 400 years in a desert. There ain't one swimmer amongst us. We have no boats, no rafts. There's no yachts waiting out there. We're dead. So God does another miracle and delivers them. Miracle, miracle. They get into the land. They become whiners for God. 
They're WFGs. And they begin to bellyache about their situation. So instead of killing them, which is what I would have done if I were God, it's like I'm getting me new people. I made the first ones. I can make some more. I'm just starting over. That's what we would have all done. You can sit here and act all holy up in here, but you would, I'm, I'm not dealing with this. They're going down. It's like, look, I deliver them. I bring them over here. I deliver them again. I'm providing for them, and they're disrespecting me. But God doesn't do that. He miraculously continues to take care of them. They get thirsty. He takes care of them. It is to those disrespectful, arrogant, prideful people that the Bible calls stubborn and stiff-necked, by the way, not me. Their own Hebrew prophets say that about them. To them, God meets with their representative personally and gives them the Ten Commandments. And then the Levitical law. And he just takes care of everything. Knowledge that nobody in the world had, they got. A way to actually be right with God, at least temporarily, that included an incredibly intricate sacrificial system that has seven major feasts, and those seven major feasts point to guess who? Jesus. And so he says, look, I'm going to have you keep all these feast days, and you're actually going to get a picture of Messiah to them. You see, how many people rest and trust in their religious knowledge? Because this group had it all. They had stuff nobody had, including direct revelation from God himself. And they trusted in it. They could quote the prophets. You see, the law, when we think about it, we just think about the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments is recorded in your Bible in what we call the Pentateuch, or the first five books. The books of Moses. But to them, that wasn't it. It also contained the writings, which are Psalms and Proverbs. It also contained the prophets. Through Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. You see, when you're talking about the Hebrews, when Paul was writing, it was virtually the whole Old Testament as we know it. They had all that. In that, you have God's revelation about his covenants. In that, you have God's revelation about his blessings. You have God's revelation about his cursings. Remember when they went to, to, to stand between these two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal? And he says, over here on this mountain, there are my blessings, and over here are my curses. He's saying, look, you do this, you're going to be good. You do this, you're going to be bad. God went so great into detail. He says, look, don't do these things. I'll curse you. And if you do these things, I'll bless you. That was all part of the law. The promises of God. How can you read the book of Psalms and not go, God loves me? 
They had all that. They read the Psalms of Ascent. I am going up to meet with my Lord. To them, they had all that knowledge. The rites, the ceremonies, the moral standards, the teaching about God himself, even to the point of understanding Messiah. That's why when they got to the New Testament times, we're still looking for Elijah who is to come. How would they know that? Elijah. They had all that. Every bit of that knowledge. And it is to them that the Apostle Paul writes, you think that because you're part of the Jewish people that you're all right with God. And it's not that you're Jewish. It's that you're actually in Christ. It is a matter of heart and not a matter of your knowledge. You see, we can put a lot of security in what we know. I've sat down and talked with people and they just get, they get like in my grill. They're like up here. It's like, well, yeah, you know, and they'll quote some obscure piece of the Levitical law. And you know, you ate shellfish last week. Yes, I did. I love shrimp. (laughs) Hallelujah. You got any with you? Can you make that scampy, please? They're like, how can you call yourself a pastor? Because I have been set free, and he who the Son has made free, he is free indeed, including eating lobster. You see, so you can start talking about all the laws, and you run through everything, and pretty, you know, pretty soon it's about what you know, not who you know. It's only about who you know. It's not about what you know. What you know is good, and you should know what you know. But it's about who you know. And the third area that we can fall into, and we have it. I've had people come into the church, well, you know, you don't do communion right here. I think to myself, hmm, what have I done now? You mean that we actually have it on Sunday morning for the first time in 35 years? That part? No, you're not doing it right. I've gotten emails on this. I'll share with you on it. Because I can. You know, it's, it's about how you snap the cracker, and it's are you using matzah, and is that actually wine, because Jesus held up a cup of wine. I've had all these things sent to me in email form. You're doing it all wrong. Nobody should ever stand in the presence of the bread in the cup. I'm thinking to myself, man, I can't do anything right. You know, people are going to perish and go to hell because of the way you're doing communion. And I'm thinking, if that's the case, we are D-E-A-D dead. And I'm not trying to disrespect the Lord's table. We should honor the Lord's table, amen? Amen. But it is not about which kind of bread you use. It's not about what kind of juice you have. It's about remembering him. Amen? Yeah. 
It's remembering him. It's not how you remember him. It's remembering him. It's very simple. Jesus said, and when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. He didn't say, and when you do this, freak out over the details so that you can be totally stressed out and everybody will not know what they're doing. We can have false security. For them, it was circumcision. You remember, it was so important in the life of Moses that one of his sons was uncircumcised, so his wife, which they're never supposed to do this, Sephora, goes and circumcises the son. It's like, honey, one of our kids is not circumcised. He skipped the eighth day. Man, God help us if it ever gets down to rites, rituals, and tradition. There are people, they'd look at what I'm wearing right now and go, (gasps) they'd be crossing themselves. (laughs) He's wearing tennis shoes. Disrespecting the Lord. I'm not disrespecting the Lord. The Lord gave me comfortable shoes. (laughs) Not in bondage. It's a Thursday night. You all came from, some of you were in shorts. Hallelujah, praise God, thank you, Jesus. I had a guy come to me one time. Well, you know, where do you baptize people? In the pool, in the courtyard? A doughboy? I said, yeah, it's made out of plastic. He said, well, I, that's not going to work. I said, really? I said, what do you mean? He said, it hasn't been blessed. So, oh, yeah, we bless the plastic all the time. <laughs> He's like all freaked out that you couldn't be baptized in a plastic pool, like it wouldn't stick or something. <laughs> that's where you can go. That's where the Hebrew people went. They were so meticulous that when they tithed, they took their spice rack out. They're over, honey, get the cumin out. Do we have any cinnamon? We don't want to rob God of the tithe of the cinnamon. You know, they did that. So much so that Jesus actually chastised. He says, look, you guys are, you are like blind guides. You're so busy worrying about this minutia that you've got a log hanging out of your eye while you're trying to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see, you can get caught up in all that ceremony. Pretty soon, you can't worship God if the color of the room isn't the way you want it or the lights are some color or not some color. I actually got, this is honest truth. You're, this is going to blow you away. I got a letter from a Calvary pastor whose state shall be nameless that actually said that there was, if you used fog machines, it was of the devil. Seriously, serious as a heart attack. You have a fog machine on your stage and people are doing worship. That's of the devil. That's of Satan. And I was looking for that verse in my Bible. The fog machine verse. 
Oddly enough, I could not find it. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, is this what we have become? It's about whether you have a fog machine or don't have a fog machine. Look, it's been going like that for a long time. It started with the Hebrews. I remember distinctly growing up in church. Electric guitars, pit of hell. Because only rock and rollers played those. You know they're all going to hell. It's all this external stuff. And none of that external stuff is what causes us to be right with Jesus. It's His grace. It's a free gift. And once you have it, you know what? Your whole world's going to get rocked. It's going to get turned upside down. And things that you once held dear, God's going to take away. And things that you once did, you're no longer going to do. And you're going to understand that there are things that you are currently doing, that God's working in and transforming and changing. But if you're hanging on to your ceremony and tradition, then you may be tempted to think that you're saved because you got baptized. Or you're saved because you took your first communion. Or you're saved because you went to catechism or Bible study or Sunday school. Or you're saved for some other reason than Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross in your place. And you have believed on his name. And so the Apostle Paul is setting the stage for us that we would have no wrong security in our lives. None. That we would rest and trust in the sufficiency of Christ himself. We walk by grace and through faith. The lives that we now live, we live because of him. Amen? You don't live the life that you now live because of me or because of any other pastor, or any other teacher, or any other church. No group of churches. The life that we now live, we live in Christ. There is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. It is at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't be trusting in the wrong things. Don't be resting in church. Don't be resting in your knowledge. Don't be resting in your heritage. A godly heritage is a wonderful thing. Praise God for those who have it. But have you ever asked yourself the simple question, what about someone who doesn't have a godly heritage? Does that mean they're lost? Did God create people to be destroyed because they were born into a Muslim country? I do not believe so. God loves every Muslim and every Hindu and every Buddhist and every animist and every New Ager and every Baptist and every Presbyterian and Episcopalian and every whatever we are because nobody knows. We're non-denominational. You use a word like that around some people. They're like, you're non-denominational? 
praise God, I'm not saved because I'm denominational or non-denominational. I'm saved by the precious blood of the Lamb. My security, our security, comes directly from God. And He speaks that security to us. To all who believe, He speaks that security by Christ Jesus. Grace through faith, not religious heritage, not religious knowledge, not religious ceremony. So let's trust in Jesus. Amen? Amen. Would you stand and let's pray? And I want to ask tonight, I'm going to have the pastors come forward if they would, please. And I want to ask tonight, because maybe here in God's house, perhaps there are some who came in and you've been resting and hoping and trusting in something other than that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe it has been your heritage. Perhaps it's your knowledge Maybe for you, you might even say it's ceremony and tradition. You, you believe you were saved because you were christened as a child. Maybe you believe you're saved because you got baptized in some church. Maybe you're, you think you're saved because of some action that you undertook. And let me just simply speak the gospel to you tonight if you're here. There is only one way that anyone ever comes to a right relationship with God the Father. It is through Jesus the Son. And that comes by simply believing on him, in him, and about him. That means you believe that he is God's only son. And as God's only son, he was absolutely righteous and perfect while he walked on this earth. He never sinned that he went and received the penalty of your sin at Calvary's cross. And as he did so, he offered his life in your place. And because he did so, when he died, your sins died with him if you believe in him. Because the blood that he shed cleansed you from all unrighteousness by simply believing in who he is. And because of that, the net result is this. That God says in his great account in heaven, he has a book called the Lamb's Book of Life. And to all who believe in him, your name is forever inscribed. And no one can snatch them out of his hands, who are my fathers. And so if you're here tonight, believers, if you'd bow your heads, close your eyes. If you're here tonight, and you would like to ask to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's that simple. You've been trusting in some other way to get to heaven. Would you simply just slip your hand up in the air? Just put it up where I can see it. We have people around the sanctuary who can help me find you. If you're in here, I see that hand. Praise the Lord. I see that hand there. Any others? Simple. We're going to have you stay there. I see that hand in the corner. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Are there any others? Don't be ashamed of him because he's not ashamed of you. Jesus died on Calvary's cross because he loves you. If you would be so kind, please keep your hands up for just a moment longer. Any others? We'll wait a moment. I see that hand. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. 
For those that have your hands raised, you can put your hands down. Would you please pray with me, pray after me, and please pray out loud. Heavenly Father, I admit that I'm a sinner and that I need a Savior. And I'm asking you, Jesus, to come into my life and to forgive me of my sin. I'm asking you to change me from the inside out and to transform me. I'm offering you my life. I'm asking you to be my Lord. I promise to walk with you the rest of my days. And I'm asking you to please put my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord.